Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. We are in Missoula, Montana at one of the most unbelievable, amazing places in all of the hunting world. And you're listening to another episode of Hunt Talk Radio, also known as Randy Newberg Unfiltered. And today I am with two guys who I think have the dream job in the hunting world. Um, Tony Shunan and Keith Balford of the, of the Boone and Crockett Club are... They are in charge, I guess, if I dare put that much responsibility on you guys, of the greatest conservation legacy we have in the hunting world, and that is the Boone and Crockett Club. The first, the, the group that started the word conservation, the group that brought conservation to the American ethos, if you want to call it that. And uh, Tony, Keith, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Randy. Yep, thanks for having us, Randy. I I know you guys are humble. I know you're understated. That's kind of always been the mode of operation of Boone and Crockett. But I'm going to try to pry some of that out of you guys because I I, I just, and you guys know I've been a lifetime associate of Boone and Crockett for a long time. And as much as I get a magazine from every organization I belong to, the one that gets the most eyeball time from me is your Fair Chase magazine. And I don't know if if I'm your target audience or or what the deal is, but the content that is in Fair Chase magazine, that's serious stuff. That's stuff that affects my future as a hunter, as someone passionate about conservation. Is I mean, is that by design? Because in Fair Chase, you're not going to read ten tips to kill your buck this year. No, it, it it is by design. That's and it's a reflection of the the uh, the work that the club does and the various committees that we have and what they're focused on. And it's you know, how to bag a big buck is certainly you know good information to have, but uh, that's not what we do. So, yeah, we're, we're more we're more interested in what puts that big buck on the ground out there from a conservation standpoint. From a cancer conservation standpoint, and and you know historically. The clubs um, always operated relatively under the radar. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, as you know, known for our records program. I mean, yeah. we're, the, we're the heads and horns guys. That's, and That's the image but that a lot of people have, Tony, but I don't have that image. No, you don't. You don't. But, right. you know, uh, the average American public that hears the term Boone and Crockett, yep. that's what they relate it to. Yeah. And, you know, in reality, you know, that was uh, – that was an effort. The, our records program was started in the 1930s, and it was started primarily as a measurement tool. And when, when you say measurement, you mean measurement of the landscape productivity, or the, the well, uh, yeah, in part, you know, in terms of uh, the success that the folks that started the Boone and Crockett Club, Theodore Roosevelt, George Bird Grinnell, what they put in place in the early 1900s, yeah. you know, with the forest reserve system, with the National Wild Refuge system, with um, the National Park system, you know, they amassed huge masses of land. Um, they they uh, they got uh, the states to get laws in place. They did away with commercial market hunting. What we needed at that point in time in the early 1930s was a way to measure the success of all those efforts. Okay. And the only way that huh. that could happen was getting the um, hunters that were in the field to record their trophies. Right. Because at that time, science supported the fact that if you have a mature male specimen that's harvested within an ecosystem, that's an indicator that that ecosystem is healthy. (laughs) So this got blown way up and became the face of the club. But in, in reality, 
the records program is 10% of my budget. Yeah. So, you know, we're back there doing all the conservation work, and we're still using the records program to this day to measure that success, as are state and federal agencies who also use that data. Um, And so that's really how the records program got started. It was an an afterthought more than anything else um, (laughs) of of how to keep track of what the... You know how well we were doing right there tony if our listeners turn off the podcast right now for people to understand what tony just said that the boone and crockett club is not about record keeping it is about conservation and the record keeping was kind of ancillary to a measurement of how good that conservation progress was coming along back at a time when conservation wasn't cool Oh no! And it's <clears throat> there was actually a time in the club's history when there was discussion to dispense with the records program because wildlife had recovered. You know, we did a good job. Conservation was successful, um, but as you know, the the decision was to keep it going forward. Um, the records program was also a tool to uh, advance and promote the concept of fair chase. Yeah, and that was also very important to the club and the club members. So, and, you know, conservation had a beginning, what we say here, it had a beginning, but it has no end. Um, <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <clears throat> so we, uh, the, the club leaders at the time, this was back in the 1950s, decided, no, we're going to continue with this record keeping to, you know, document conservation success. It also, unfortunately, points out failures. Right. Um, you know, the data can go up and down. Yeah. Um, Huh. And so, like Tony said, it's it's used for um, you know tracking success and failures. It's used by the the people that are making decisions on game species relative to their management. And you know, after nearly a hundred years, it's become the public face of the club. Right. But a very small percentage of what we do on a day to day basis as a organization. Yeah, because the, I you know I subscribe to all the news wires. I. I read. I mean, this <laughs> this is pretty important stuff to me, like it is to you guys. So, I see you guys in D.C. I see you guys involved in so much conservation policy. That's really how I see the Boone and Crockett Club, and it it always strikes me that a lot of people see the Boone and Crockett Club, like you said, just said, Keith, the face of it anyhow, as this record keeping organization. And, and you know, and, and records keeping is is an integral to our to our group. You know, yeah. it's it you know. Um, as Keith indicated, today is as important to keep these records up to date as as it was a hundred years ago. Because, you know, we are continuing to succeed for the most part, but we still have areas where we where we need to come in and and, and try and fix things too. So, um, you know, an example of that is our 29th awards program that's going to be coming up in Springfield, Missouri, in, in July. In July, yeah. So. You know, we feel it's important that when the public comes, and we're going to be a part of America's National um, Museum and Aquarium, Wildlife Museum and Aquarium, we're going to have a lot of people, probably upwards of 125,000 people that will see these heads in the three months they're going to be on display. This will be the one and only time that this particular collection will come together. But the message behind that is where hunting happens, conservation happens, because there's there's a lot more story behind those heads hanging on a wall. It's the success of our management agencies at the state and federal level. It's, um, you know, th- those animals were 
are, are up there because our system of conservation in this country is, is working. And that's something that all of us as hunters can be very, very proud of. Right. So that's, that gets me into a really interesting topic that uh, people who are, are out on my Hunt Talk forum, which uh, is uh, a, an integral part of our, our Hunt Talk radio, is and Keith, you and I have talked about this before, and Tony just brought up the word conservation and its successes and where it's at today. I think you and I uh, at times get frustrated because the term conservation has always belonged to, it's kind of been the turf of what we as hunters have done. But over the course of time, we have let others capture or take or make claim to that turf under a, under a guise of something that's much different than you and I look at conservation. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I can't, a week doesn't go by that I don't read some headline that says uh, this conservationist group opposes this action or this conservationist group is, uh, you know, filing this lawsuit and, um, you know, you peel the onion one layer and you find out, no, this isn't a, a conservation group. This is, you know, this is uh, non-use preservation. This is protectionism, which is a completely different philosophy. Um, and conservation, you know, the wise and, and shared use of natural resources without waste has been the model that the club founder, Theodore Roosevelt, established. Um, you know, our, our, our rape and pillage, if you will, of natural resources um, in the mid to late 1800s, uh, you know, proved that wildlife was not inexhaustible. Yep. Um, that we could not just clear forest without consequences. We just couldn't till prairies without consequence to uh, these resources. And that's what brought them to come forward with a, a new idea, this idea of conservation. And that's operated successfully. Um, it's the, the basis for many, many laws that we have, many, many pieces of legislation uh, that have been passed. Um, it's been responsible for the, the recovery of species, many of them from near extinction. What was happening to the bison was also happening to yeah. uh, elk, deer, sheep, uh, brown pelicans, you know, birds. You name it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you name it. Um, but, you know, in the last, probably about from the 1990s, uh, we started to see a shift where even before that, in the 1970s, there was a environmental movement this is back when you know we started to pay attention to air and water pollution right and recycling and uh you know you know green efforts and these were these were um efforts that produce wonderful results um, and at the time those groups called themselves environmentalists right and and you know the conservationist movement supported that this is we're all on the same page here uh, but over time, environmentalists, that label, uh, for whatever reason, was not becoming um, politically correct or what have you. and It, and so it, it almost earned its status as a four-letter word. In it did. Um, and so, you know, calculated or not, these groups started 
renaming themselves, rebranding themselves conservationist. And, uh, you know, before you know it, the media is calling them conservationists. Exactly. And, and there's, there's fundamental differences. Um, and club founder Theodore Roosevelt said it, he, um, you know, conservation means development as much as it does preservation. And what he was saying is there is a time and a place for preservation. Uh, when we, when he set aside national parks like Yellowstone, um, and we set out to protect that land when we established um, national wildlife refuges. These these were protection moves, right. okay? And they were necessary, and they provided great benefits. They're responsible for some land that we have today and wildlife that we have today. So preservation is actually a tool in the conservation toolbox when right. it's applied appropriately, you know, under the right circumstance. But it was never intended to supersede conservation as the model. Preservation is non-use. Right. Conservation is wise use. Yeah. And so there's fundamental differences there. And unfortunately, the more these groups um, become to be called conservation groups, their supporters actually think they're supporting conservation uh, when that's not actually the case right. they're supporting preservation mm -hmm. and when preservation is applied you know broadly mm -hmm. um, wildlife and people suffer right the, the the end result is not the intended it's not the it's not what conservation seek it's not what preservationists seek um, so you know wildlife doesn't happen by accident you know there's there's a myth this balance of nature myth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially Which, when you get, what, how many people on the North American continent now? 450, 500 million? This, yeah. yeah, this whole wonderful, beautiful cycle myth. Yeah, the, yeah. the, the balance of nature thing is, is, that's the belief that nature unattended will take on perfect principles. Yeah. Well, you know, we're long past the days of, you know, the balance of nature actually being a reality wildlife exists now um by the choices that people make right what we accommodate for them uh, what space we make available to them the quality of the habitat of that that space that we make available to them uh, so just removing man from the equation and saying okay everything's going to be a national park now where there's no use there's no access um, that, that's not reality. The majority of wildlife uh, in the, the U.S. today alone is living on shared landscapes where people live and work. Right. So, and you've brought us to today, Keith, with that. And I, I think just because I don't want the listener to overlook the distinction between conservation and environmentalism. It's... It, we read about it so much that I'm afraid some of us in the hunting community maybe even think of the two as being synonymous. And I will not give up that turf. And people who use that term in front of me need to prove to me, if, if I know they've taken the environmental approach, they're not going to get by in front of me saying they're a conservationist. Because there are, these are... Ex the, 
I, I don't want to make it sound like environmentalism is bad. Like you said, when, when the, in the 60s and 70s, when some of our landmark legislation came forward, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, the, you know, a lot of good legislation came forward at that time. But to think that conservation, wise use, and environmentalism of no use are the same thing is that if, if we as hunters continue to let that happen, we're going to lose our legacy that you guys, and not you, the two of you, but your organization started. There was, there was no such thing known as conservation in the mindset of America until the Boone and Crockett Club and its founders and its influential members made the sacrifice, did the hard work, and made that part of the American ethic. It's who we are now. Well, well, conservation, you know, in essence, the difference between conservation and preservation is is no use versus wise and shared use. Right. So, as Keith alluded to, the no use program doesn't work very well, you know, because it's a shared landscape now. No matter what what you want to think about it, um, people have got to build houses. People have got to have um, minerals. People yeah. have got to have. Now, there's a right way to do all this stuff, and I can tell you, back in the 60s and 70s, we kind of ran off the track there a little bit. You know, <laughs> yeah, the Cuyahoga what, River started on fire. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's, those weren't good things. But I think, you know, by and large, because con the term conservation has become so widely popular because it is a wise and shared and common sense approach to the management of our natural resources and wildlife, mm -hmm. that, you know, it's getting used by people who really shouldn't be classifying themselves and using it that way. Right. Not to say that they don't have legitimate efforts going on. That, that's not the issue. Right. But the term itself is not a no-use term. Right. It is a wise and shared-use term. And to your, to your point, you know, hunters, by and large, are part of a wise and shared-use network, if you will. Right. You know, we all pay to enjoy our wildlife and to hunt our wildlife. License dollars, excise taxes, you know, things that even hunters don't know about that, that, that they do every time they go down into their into their local sporting goods stores support that, that support the North American model of conservation. And um, and it is that conservation. It's not preservation. Right. It's conservation. And so um, yeah, we, we do have to start making that more well known to Especially the seventy-seven percent of the American public that don't hunt but support hunting as long as they know it's done ethically. That, that, what you said right there, Tony, is my biggest worry: is that society right now, I think, is the, the pendulum swings slowly, but the pendulum swinging where society certainly isn't making that distinction. I I, I wonder at times if because I've heard some hunters say I'm not a conservationist because now they're starting to view conservation as synonymous with environmentalism and yeah environmentalism was did earn this four-letter word because of some of their actions not saying as a total movement it's a four-letter word but in society's opinion there's a reason why when you go to an event those people introduce themselves as conservationists when they're raising funds among their private groups they call themselves environmentalists. We've all seen it where mm -hmm. they'll come and say, oh yeah, I'm the conservation group of, you know, insert name here. 
And we're like, wait a second, you guys are litigating everything. You're locking this up. You're stopping that. You're, you're, you're never, you have a no use policy. What do you mean you're conservationist? But then you'll hear them talking among themselves or you'll get one of their letters of request for funds for a donation. And it's environmental, 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 environmental. And I just, I worry, and, and I'm glad that Fair Chase Magazine, the magazine of the Boone and Crockett Club, brought that up in the most recent edition because I do feel it's, it's important that we have to start claiming our turf that we've earned. Well, we, and we fought this battle once before. Um, we talked a little bit about Roosevelt and the early club members establishing the conservation movement. Part of that was awakening the public to the fact that, that wildlife was inexhaustible and pointing out the plight of wildlife. And once the public did wake up to the fact that we needed to change our ways, preservation was put on the table back then. Okay, you know, we're, we're, we're draining down this resource, so let's just stop. Yeah. And, and that's where Roosevelt and Grinnell and early club members stepped in and said, no, the proper model is to continue to allow public access to this wildlife, but now let's just, let's regulate it. Let's make sure that it's a sustainable harvest. And, you know, conservation won the day back then, um, and it needs to win the day again. And right. it, it is a concern when, um, you know, the non-hunting public is, is confused over what's being presented to them because it looks good on paper (laughs) you know yeah it looks good on paper but as as soon as uh as soon as you start saying well um you know we're we're just going to cut off uh, public access to lands and and waterways and this is not just hunting it's also fishing it's camping it's mountain climbing it's it's what have you um the advocacy for those lands, the advocacy for that wildlife, you cut that off. Yeah. And then we got real problems. Yeah. Um, it, so we, we do have to do a better job of telling our story, getting our message out, correcting the errors that are out there relative to, you know, this is what this really means. I think we as hunters, as a general rule, have a tendency to understate ourselves. We, we're loners, kind of, to some degree. We don't want to bother others. We, we just want to go about doing our work. We don't necessarily need credit for it. But if there's one group that exemplifies humility almost to a fault of, of uh, being o- overlooked or misunderstood, it's probably the Boone and Crockett Club. But... You guys were telling me that by design, at its founding, the Boone and Crockett Club wanted to be as low key as possible. It it did. Um, this was this goes back to Roosevelt and, and his philosophy of facilitating others to uh, get things done and allowing them to take the credit for it. Um, the club never sought headlines. It was more important that the job got done, that piece of legislation got passed. Um, you know, this was supported, that was supported. Who got credit didn't really matter. Um, you can, in history, if you understood or know who Boone and Crockett members were, you'll see those people's names. You know, <laughs> Everywhere. Gifford Pinchot, Aldo Leopold, Pink Guterman, um, you know, 
heroes of conservation back in the day, those are names that you can Google and find out. But even if you Googled them and Wikipedia them, you wouldn't see on there that it said regular member of the Boone and Crockett Club. Right. But all these people were. The, the club was really kind of a think tank where members would get together, they would discuss problems, or they'd have experts come and present problems and say, you know, hey, this is going on here, and and here is why it's going on. Here's what's facilitating this happening. It's a negative. Here's a solution, and the club would decide how to, how to attack that. And oftentimes it would be, you know what, we've got a good partner over here. Let's bring this to them and support them in getting it done. Or club members themselves would champion it. Um, a lot of our early club members went out and established other conservation groups. Right. Um, you know, if you look at how many we have today, a good percentage of those were actually started by Boone and Crockett members, Ducks Unlimited being one of them. Uh, Wild Sheep Foundation, yeah. you know, it's a long, long list. These guys <laughs> were heavily engaged. They just also happened to be Boone and Crockett members and, yeah. you know. Well, so much of the legislation that has got us to this conservation recovery we enjoy today, it didn't happen because Congress said, oh, well, let's pass that law. Just about every one of those laws I look at and go back and read, and uh, I mean, you you can <laughs> people there there would be laws and policies that a lot of our members probably never even or listeners have never even heard of, whether it's the Lacey Act, the Antiquities Act, the you know back in the early 1900s. It's not like Congress said, "Hey, that's a good idea." You look behind the scenes, and just about every one of them have some of the founders of Boone and Crockett or their successors who were planting the seeds, pushing it forward, doing the hard work, and then standing back and letting someone else kind of raise their hand and say, yeah, I was part of that. And that was part of, you know, that was part of Roosevelt's intention from the get-go. You know, when he formed the club in 1887, you know, he set the member, regular member headcount at 100. And they were 100 people that were pretty diverse folks. I mean, they were people of means and 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 education. Um, they were industrialists. They were politicians. But the, his mo was always put the right guy in the right spot to do the right thing at the right time, and you're going to succeed. Yeah. And that's the model we still follow to this day. Yeah. And um, to a large extent. And you know, we do try to do our best to empower efforts to succeed, working with great partners. Um, and we have more now than we've ever had that are actively organized, doing good and worthwhile things for the sporting community and our natural resources and our hunting heritage. Um, so, you know, today I think the American sportsmen at the national level is probably better organized than, they, than they've ever been to address some pretty serious problems coming at us in the next few decades. And um, it, it's going to be important that, um, above all, that our community, our hunting community, maintains that seventy, the confidence of that seventy-seven percent of the American public. Because if that ever goes away, um, we're going to be in, in serious straits. So we've got issues floating around out there, like lead is just a perfect example yeah. of one of the most misinformed 
pieces of of an issue that you could possibly you know there there is no science right that supports an across the ba- ground you know across the board ban on lead ecosystem yes i mean there's ecosystems that probably need to have alternative forms of ammunition but yet we're in a position where we just try to get the facts out there you know whether it's ourselves through our members you know we've got people who specialize in science we've got people who specialize in um, the political system and how to get things done um you know that we take an issue like that and and but it's very important because if that 77 percent of the american public you know hears the wrong thing or is convinced of the wrong thing then all of a sudden you know the honey they start questioning the hunting community the other the other challenge that we run with the with that 77% is most of those people today are connected in some way, shape, or form to hunting. Either they're, you know, their great grandpa hunted or their great uncle hunted. Yep. And so as we're, as time goes on, they're becoming further separated from our community, which is another, you know, to your point about we're kind of a group of isolationists in a way. <laughs> we need to start not being that way and yep. start crafting messages that, you know, not only do our own people understand but these people can understand because those who oppose us are very good at crafting those messages and very good at swaying that public opinion and um you know we we need to we need to jump over that bump and 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 fix that problem yeah and uh, uh, our listeners have heard me and many of our guests say what you're referring to tony as hunting exists at the pleasure of the other 77 percent that if we can't provide relevance to that group of people, they're going to say, you know what, I'm not sure hunting really has a place in my view of the world. And that that's not what I want. Um, I don't think that's what any of our listeners want. But we, we, I think, and when I say we, I mean the hunting community itself, have an opportunity right now to we're at a pivot point and maybe we're always at a pivot point where what we do and what our vision is for ourselves is going to determine whether that 77% becomes 60% or becomes 40% or stays at 77% and goes to 82%. And so much of that to me is about us knowing our own history which you guys are the keepers of the history. I, I love being here right now. I'm looking at, and we're, folks, if you could see where we're sitting, there is a library of old books where we're sitting right now that I wish I'd lived long enough to read them all. But they're, they're like the, the who, the what's what of conservation in North America. And if, if, if we don't know our own history, we're, we have a hard time advocating our, our value to the others who, who are looking at us kind of questioning, well, what is your relevance? What, what is your place here? And uh, that gets me to, to some other points about we, I think we as a hunting community at times have a tendency to blame others. Oh, well, it's these people or that people they don't understand or they're out to get us or whatever. And there's some relevance to that. But how do we as, as a community uh, bring, bring that history forward. I, I know you guys probably don't want to make it sound like you're pitching the Boone and Crockett Club, but really, you, Fair Chase Magazine, it, which you get for being a member, 
And you'd made reference earlier, Tony, about the regular membership was capped at 100. And, and I want people to not take that and say, oh, they only let 100 <laughs> members in. <laughs> no. Because there, there, there's no cap on anyone who can no. be a member of Boone and Crockett. No, we, we, our, our category of membership, just to clarify that part of it, yeah, so we have 100 regular members, and they're the ones that run the club. Right. You know, now... We also have about 150 to 160 professional members, right. and those guys are um, and get, and ladies are are um, from academia. Uh, they're agency heads. They're um, people who have accomplished themselves uh, in other ways in the conservation community. They're heads of other NGOs, mm-hmm. um, and they, like I said, those are kind of the worker beat boots on the ground guys and they're out there doing good and worthwhile conservation work you know whether it's a species specific group or or another group um but you know the the, so there's there but then we have our rank and file like you're a lifetime associate right so you know that's 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 our next level after professional member and then our grassroots base is is what we call our associate level which you know anybody can join Boone and Crockett as an associate and they get Fair Chase magazine but you know what we're finding is that um, within that within within that group of people like yourself there's a lot of very dedicated um, people who have their eyes open and they see what's going on uh, they want to be involved um, you know, I think that the more hunters knew about um, what's really going on, you know, both at the national and state level with some of these issues, I think they would want to be involved. And again, it come, boils down to a communication issue um, uh, that we as a community have got to overcome because it's, it's it, you know, as much for our own people as, as for that 77%. Right. And the history is a big piece of it i mean you know you got to understand where you came from before you can understand where you got to go yeah because how many times do we get in these discussions debates sometimes have to defend ourselves and if you don't know the history of how you got here the fact that you're part of the group that brought conservation to become a concept that was foreign to the world until that time how are you going to articulate and have a reasonable argument you're going to get steamrolled mm-hmm. and lack of understanding lack of history lack of knowledge is is gonna make it a challenge if we don't if we as a group don't decide hey we're gonna make ourselves better at that well the, the history is certainly there the science is there we always say history and science is on our side but you have to know that yeah um and just to jump onto one thing that tony was saying about our associates you don't have to have a trophy in the record book to be an associate of Boone and Crockett. That's, <laughs> right. that's, the, that's the big hang-up. Everybody thinks, well, someday I'll join Boone and Crockett once I get a trophy. Um, it's, that's not necessary. Um, but, you know, we were talking about the 77% and their, their support for hunting. Uh, but we've also found that that's, that support is conditional. Mm-hmm. And, and that's important for folks to know. Um, you know, hunting has a high approval rating when um, it's done ethically, for certainly. That's that's one of the reasons why the club, you know, staunchly supports and promotes fair chase. Uh, the meat is consumed. Yep. Uh, that ranks very high. Um, and then there's some things that rank rank low. Um, you 
um, hunting in preserves ranks low. Uh, unfortunately, trophy hunting ranks low. Uh, there's a lot of work for us to do in that regard. Yeah. People have a, a misconception that you know trophy hunting is is just uh, you know ego and is wasteful and has no conservation value or conservation connection. So understanding where where our strengths and our weaknesses lie relative to hunting being conditional uh, is important. Yeah. So Keith, before we go on to that next part here, I'm just going to interrupt us for a second. I want to talk about a great group that helps us uh, with this podcast. It's called GoHunt.com. Those of you who have been listening to the podcast or watching our our, uh, YouTube series called Elk Talk, uh, you know that I've been using the the go hunt insider system for quite a while here and and it is an excellent system for anything you want to know about certain units uh, in the west um it's got state by state analysis it's got deadlines it's got pretty much everything you need to investigate to research uh these units out here it's all limited entry draw so you want to have your your ducks in a row i guess your research done before you you get around to burning all those really <laughs> hard-earned points that you might have. So if you go to GoHunt.com and click on the button Insider, um, you can sign up there and use the promo code HUNTTALK, H-U-N-T-T-A-L-K. And if you do so, you're going to get a, a Gerber Vital Scalpel Blade knife, one of the replaceable blade knives like we use for doing so. Um, and I can assure you that if you use the Insider service from GoHunt, it's going to give you so much detail, so much information that it's all in one place. It, those of us who've been doing this for years, we have volumes and volumes of research scattered in all kinds of places, spread in all kinds of different uh, files. Um, this brings it all together, and it makes things very, very easy for you. So gohunt.com, click on the Insider and use the promo code HUNTTALK. And uh, so now, Keith, I want to go further into this discussion about what, what, kind of where we were leading here with the trophy hunting thing. It, you know, you just used the term there, trophy hunting. And I, as you were saying that, Keith, I wrote down, eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. Um, and here, here's why uh, I say it. I was interviewed uh, for a, a website news piece. Oh, I think it was in October or something. And they kept uh, using the term trophy hunting. And I'm like, well, tell me what trophy hunting means to you. Because obviously this person is a, is a writer who, uh, it was not, uh, you, you quickly knew the intention was not about uh, promoting positive light on hunting. <laughs> and uh, so they said, well, you just shoot them to hang them on your wall. Um, I said, oh, okay. Tell, tell me more of what you mean by shoot them and hang them on your wall. Well, that's what you guys do. I said, okay. I said, I'm, I'm just going to accept your premise that that's what you think. And I thought, maybe this is an education opportunity. And so I, <laughs> I don't know if, I, uh, if I'm just that stupid or I like to be frustrated. But So I said, do you, do you understand how, and I started using the analogy of growing a herd of beef. I said, do you understand how that works? Why, why, what, what does the rancher do each fall? And they're like, well, uh, what do you mean? I said, well, they sell the steer calves. They, they don't sell the heifer calves because what grows the herd 
is the heifer calves. The steer calves are the excess. And so if we're going to have building and growing herds, in many instances, the excess that we can take without impacting the overall herd health are usually the male of the species because one male can, can help populate multiple females. And they're like, well, what does that have to do with trophy hunting? I said, well, you, when you s try to categorize everything as trophy hunting, the fact that I went and shot a white-tailed buck, regardless of whether it's big or small or in between, you're trying to say that that's trophy hunting because the antlers are on my wall because I keep every piece of it. I go do a European mount. I go do whatever. But because it's a male, you want to call it trophy hunting. I call that conservation. And then it went to next question. <laughs> they didn't want to talk about it anymore after that. Mm -hmm. So my point is in, in bringing it up, and we don't need to belabor it, but I think even we as hunters at times maybe walk into our own trap or we set our own traps by saying trophy hunting this or trophy hunting that one. By the very nature of the conservation model that helped bring wildlife back, we were only going to shoot, in most instances, the male species until we reached the point that, okay, it's abundant enough that we will shoot some females, some does, some mm -hmm. ewes, some, some cows, whatever. And uh, I, when I hear hunters get into this trophy hunting thing, I just want to pull my hair out. I'm like, you know, what... what what is your version of trophy hunting and what is that person's version of trophy hunting is so much in the eye of the beholder. And, it, and then you start wanting to get into motives. And once you open up the discussion of motives, it, it, you're done. <laughs> you know, you're going to get in a fist fight at that point. So it, w when you brought it up in the context of, of trophy hunting and the way you said it, Keith, I, I agree. I mean, People, the society is there when, when you say it rates low. I think part of that is, is because we as hunters maybe haven't done a good job of talking about what hunting is when you take males of the species and we've let the other side or the, the rest of the people define that as trophy hunting. Well, that, that's a good example of, that's why I said we've got work to do um, because that's, Trophies become a four-letter word on our watch, and we know that that's, you know, basic conservation. That's why we hunt the males. Um, you know, we also have people out there that are, you know, stirring the pot by trying to, um, you know, advance their anti-hunting agenda by using trophy hunting as a wedge to get at that 70%, saying, hey, you can't support this, this is, this is wasteful. This is all these people care about. This is, tro you know, trophy hunting has got to stop. Obviously, you know, the Cecil, the lion thing really kicked that can over for us. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. <clears throat> sorry to bring that up. Yeah, Keith, that's five demerits there. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, these, these are the conditional approval and perception things that we can't ignore. And, you know, we... You know, hunters, for the most part, like you said, are private. Uh, we, we like to play by the rules. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty tolerant of the nonsense that floats around. Yeah. Um, but I think we've got to be less tolerant and, and <laughs> apply ourselves a little more diligently to correct some of the 
the misperceptions that are being promoted out there and, and, and call them out when we see them. Yeah. And, and when you say we maybe need to be less tolerant, there are some people listening, I'm sure are saying that Newberg's about as intolerant as anybody I've heard in a long <laughs> the time. Present company, except <laughs> present, yeah, present company, except oh, but tro- trophy has been one of those terms. Another one of those terms has just been, um, completely misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's been unfortunate, you know, I mean, it's kind of a, you know, matter of convenience for those who oppose us that they can pick this term up and use it however they want. And then suddenly those of us who do like to go out, you know, are, are labeled. Right. So yeah. it's nothing more than, you know, when you're in fourth, fifth, sixth grade getting labeled by a bunch of bullies or what have you. You know, it's yeah. the same kind of thing. There's a, there's a distinct method and science behind trophy. And again, going back to our records program, that is that is the records program. I mean, you take one of these animals, a mature male specimen, out of an ecosystem. That's an indicator that that system is healthy, and you know that 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 and, and that is the whole purpose of trophy hunting. Right. You know, like you said, you're 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 hunting the males because one male can take care of a whole lot of females. And so, you know, when, when it's a population control question, it's generally the males. So it, um, but it is, it's, it's unfortunate that, that it's been um, taken and torn apart like it has that particular term because to hunters who understand it, it really means something. Right. Something really, really important. Yeah. And it, that's... It reminds me of uh, when I was a boy growing up, we... In Ohio, my dad was a big pheasant hunter. That was his thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I'd go out with him, and we'd flush hen pheasant after hen pheasant, and, hen, you know, and he'd never shoot. And I'd go, what is, you know, <laughs> I thought this was the point here. And, and, and you were supposed to yell hen. You know, when a hen got up, you yelled hen. Right. And, uh, you know, he taught me, so we just, we don't shoot the hens. We don't shoot the females. That way, and then he explained the whole, that was my first birds and the bee talk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> and, and so that was always ingrained in me that, you know, you don't shoot, you know, you don't shoot the female. And that was, that was the cornerstone of the early conservation movement. Right. And, and in order to rebuild the, the wildlife stocks, as we talk about, whatever populations, whatever term you want to put to it, that was the model that was required. You. Yeah. We were not going to recover wildlife if we were going to go shoot the females. It was, that's very, very fundamental. (laughs) Just, but yet today, and and I'm not saying we don't contribute, we as a collective community at times don't contribute to that stereotype. Um, I, I produce outdoor TV. You guys produced outdoor TV at one time for the Boone and Crockett Club. And... I will say that there's a lot of times the media message that we put out there will at times confirm that stereotype. Well, you you brought up outdoor programming, not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not at times. Uh, you, you cannot, um, you know, trophy worship is front and center there. And uh, it's not that that's a bad thing, but... Um, just me personally, and, and I know a lot of people that say uh, what's on TV is not helping us. 
um, how wildlife is being portrayed, how it is being treated. Um, you know, we've we've gotten off track. Yeah, I mean, to, all of to steal all of, a quote from Tony, we we've, we've we've gotten off track here. And what concerns me because I've got a young hunter in my house. My daughter's fourteen. Um, she can't watch it. Yeah, she goes, I can't. Just dancing over a dead deer, Dad. I, that's not me. I can't do that. Right. And uh, unfortunately, the things that you guys were just putting on the list of what ranks high for the 77% versus what ranks lower for the 77%. It's like a lot of outdoor TV producers must have read that in a mirror <laughs> and uh, inverted it because... I. You know, and and I, I'm just gonna say it because a friend of mine is fond of saying it every time he sees me. As Randy, we didn't need to invent anti-hunters because along came outdoor TV. <laughs> and he says it somewhat tongue in cheek to get a reaction out of me, but I think we in the media, whether it's print media, whether it's TV media, better start looking in the mirror quickly and say. Is this, uh, it's almost as though some of us think we are bigger than hunting and conservation itself. And I completely reject that. And none of us, I don't care who you are, you are not bigger than what this thing is we call hunting and conservation. But outdoor TV is no doubt a contributor to public's perception of what we as hunting are. How, and, how could it not be? I mean, there it is. Right. It's you flip through the channels and 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 you watch it even if you're a non-hunter. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that you know we're as a community pretty much a unified group. We're the good guys. Um, you know, we let slide, but um, I think we need to start paying attention and calling out the bad actors. Hey. Um, you know, this, this, we're all band of brothers stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's another thing that looks good on paper, but we, we've got some people shooting holes in the boat here. Oh, for sure. And they're the first ones to say, Oh, we can, you don't, don't, don't divide and, you know, oh, don't yeah. divide the hunting community. And they're usually the ones most offended when people bring up this topic. Sure. And my grandma had a very great statement about people who got offended easily. She said, those most offended are usually those most offensive. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. You can't deny that, Keith. What you just said is we have a responsibility to start policing our own ranks when it comes to that messaging. Because when the 77% when the sees that, or when the other 23% who doesn't like us, or whatever that percentage might be, 15% or 10% that doesn't like us, what's the first thing that they show the 77%? They show something from outdoor TV that is appalling or offensive. Well, <laughs> you know, you've got social media has become a, a playground for that. Um, you know, didn't didn't used to be able to distribute that kind of news and information far and wide, but now you certainly can. Um, yeah, you you surely can. It's it's, and it's, it's immediate now. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, the interesting 
piece for me is, um, <clears throat> you know, if we could ever convince our media folks to come together and talk, talk turkey about this issue. Right. We have a great amount of power to get positive messages out to our own people. Yeah. Because, you know, <clears throat> yeah, you know, there's shows there that, that certainly represent a risk for our community, but they also are the very shows that our own people are watching and that will form their cultural thinking. Yeah. And that's a danger in and of itself. So, you know, there's there at some point in time would be it'd be great to have a course correction in outdoor media and really start thinking. I will say one thing, and you know, not to bring up the Cecil thing, but I want to bring it up anyway. All right. You've, so you got to put twenty bucks in the pot <laughs> too. <laughs> so the one thing that we noticed about Cecil, because we, you know, we took a lot of calls here. Oh, you I know, bet. You know, yeah. fair chase. You know, was it a fair chase? Of course, you know, nobody knew the facts when the calls came in. But we were able to take a lot of the media people, and these are mainstream folks, that right. um, and turn them into. You know, they came in with an agenda. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. You know, and after Keith talked to him, or I talked to him, um, you know, they all of a sudden, when, when we said, you know, we're not about, you know, the hunter, we're celebrating the animal. You know, that changed the conversation. Yep. So these people left with a much different perception than they did. But what Cecil did is wake up the hunting community. It woke up our agencies. Yeah. It woke up our industry people. You know, I, I've been to the SHOT Show. This was my 31st year. Oh, my condolences. I've yeah. only been to eight of them. Well, I, uh, <laughs> nine, of them. nine of them. Yeah, I'm... I'm uh, I should be re reincarnated, but um, <laughs> or rehab, or rehab, <laughs> yeah. But you know, for the first time, people were actually talking about these things, right? Um, and and so, you know, but that but that's the wrong way to get woke up. You know, I think we need to we need to have the solid discussion among ourselves of what what is responsible for the future of our of what we all love to do, which yeah. is hunt, yeah. and 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 it, it extends over to the fishing side as well, but. You know, I think it's, you know, we, we've got smart people running these companies, yeah. you know, they're not, you know, they, 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 they are, uh, and they're good people, you know, they're, they're, there's not any ill intent there. It's just, you know, the nature of the beast, the course it's taken, it's just, it is what it is. We need a course correction and, it, you know, we need to all just sit around a table and say, okay, what, what are we going to do to, 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 to get the house in order here? Yeah. And to the, what you just said there, Tony, it, uh, one thing that has impacted w what I do on a daily basis with Outdoor TV is this year the network sent out a whole new list of production guidelines. And they're much more firm about the, the things we talked about. So I'm going to be interested to see this is next, this upcoming year, I'll be the first year under those stringent guidelines. Um, I'm hoping that that starts moving this this uh pendulum yeah. well i wasn't aware <laughs> it, of that randy that i mean yeah. that's really encouraging if they've done that yeah it's um, you know it's and to do it is one thing and then to to make sure that the effect and the impact of it gets followed through is is going to be another thing but it's it has a list of things that are going to be no tolerance so Hopefully, um, you won't see people dancing around like fools and and doing things that, to me anyhow, are. And, and this is just my style, and and people know what my style is. But I'm when I walk up to that animal, I just have this over. I'm overcome with this sense of reverence and 
respect and responsibility. And that doesn't always translate well on, on video or anything else because it's such a personal experience. The flip side of it, if I go there and dance and hoot and jump up and down and, you know, throw stuff in the air and that does come across on video mm -hmm. <laughs> for what it is. So the one side of it doesn't come across well, even if you do it right. The other side, the other message comes across real well. I mean, or to full effect, I should say, with video. But you, one of you brought up another thing that um, it gets into this uh, social media. And I have a big Facebook page. Uh, I have an Instagram page. I own a huge talk forum, uh, a web forum called uh, Hunt Talk. And some of the things you see posted on social media or elsewhere gets into this. Some people will say, I can do that because it's my right. Yeah. And I often am interested when I talk to thinkers in the hunting world, has this whole push to make hunting a right, like some state constitutions have been amended in the last 10 years to ballot initiatives or whatever to say hunting is a right. Has the right versus privilege discussion caused hunting to feel it has less accountability? And I don't know if it's just me feeling that, but so often when I see something posted on my forum or, or on a Facebook page or whatever, and someone says, you know, that's, that's, I, I, someone will respectfully say, I don't buy into that. And the first response just about always is, well, it's my right to do as I please. If you don't like it too bad. And I get that. Maybe it, he, he or she feels it's their right, but collectively, I think what we do is a privilege, even if that person thinks it's a right. But before we go on too much further about privileges versus rights, I'm just going to quickly uh, do a quick plug here for Orion Coolers. Uh, they're a big supporter of this podcast, big supporter of the self-guided public land hunter. And uh, I've been using their coolers for a while now. Excellent coolers uh, for the type of hunting that I do where I need to keep things cold for weeks, uh, you know, uh, days on end, maybe a full week even. Uh, Orion Coolers are up to the task. I, I kick them, I beat them, I stand on them, I camp on them, I sleep on them, whatever. Uh, they just hold up. And if you buy one, you'll realize that uh, whoever designed this this layout for the Orion Cooler and all the features, they, they definitely do the hunting and fishing gig that we do. So uh, if, you, if you're inclined, go to oriancoolers.com and uh, you'll see some really cool colors if you're into college sports they have what's called the home team series where you can get uh co whatever color is your home team in your cooler but uh even more impressive than their array of colors is definitely the quality of the product so but anyhow guys i, I want to continue with this whole notion of right versus privilege and and how that kind of fits into some of the things we're talking about here well for one we we distilled down you know hunting is a privilege not a right it can yeah. be taken away right you know right <laughs> is something that can't be taken away a privilege can be um, a privilege is one of those things that has to be earned repeatedly um, but that got me to thinking when you were asking this question I, I wonder how much of that type of pushback that we get from people that you see on social media have to do with the fact that that we've been under attack and on defensive for so long yeah, we have been. Um, that it's it's frustration bubbling forward 
Um, yeah, there, I'm sure that's some of that. Yeah, I mean it's it's there uh, every time you turn around. Uh, we're getting drugged through the mud over this, that, and the other thing. You know, our uh, you know hunting's morally corrupt, and you know you just you start reading some of this stuff after a while. You you do want to just shove back out of frustration. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've been in that position many times. Keith. And, you know, this is not <laughs> social media's fault. Right. I mean, we got people. Nope. I've I've heard people say, "Oh, you know, the Cecil thing. You know, this was all social media's fault." No, that's not. That's just the mechanism. Yeah. Um. But one of the other things that that Cecil exposed is just how much are we advocating for something that we like to do or advocating for wildlife right and and those are two different those are two different things and you know you talk about the the non-hunting public that's 70 plus percent a lot of what we put out there is advocating for hunting something we like to do right and and that gets sniffed out pretty quick yeah and I had Shane Mahoney on uh, a podcast last summer, and he said as much as we might want to deny it, and we don't want to question each other's motives, society wants to question our motive. They want to know why. And if they feel the motive is pure, or the motive has relevance to something they can relate to, they fall into the 77%. If the motive is perceived as self-serving perceived as something else they usually fall into the other side into what you just said there Keith. i i think society's pretty perceptive in that stuff about well it's you know there's an emotional you know the taking the life of an animal is an emotional thing for people i mean some people can't can't uh you know reconcile that and you know that's understandable hunting's not for everyone right um, so it's something that's as emotionally charged as hunting can be. Um, you know, I guess society rightfully expects it to be done and have meaning and purpose. Yeah. And, and we should accept that. That gets back to that, you know, the acceptance is conditional if it is, you know, in service to conservation, done ethically, is not self-serving. You know, the food is brought home and... and and used and shared with others and these are all things that we know but we're just too quiet about it right well you know back to your you know the right versus privilege thing i think whether you consider it a right or a privilege that doesn't that doesn't take away you know the, the personal responsibility of being an ethical hunter no i'm and you know and so you know, to say you're, you know, you, you you can do this because you have the right to do it. You know, you still, you, you st- it's incumbent it, upon you to be a responsible person. Yeah. And, you know, but it's like he said, in reality, you know, even though it's written into some state constitutions, it is a privilege because what what is happening now is not that they're trying to take, quote, the right away. Mm-hmm. Because that's way too forceful, right. and that's in your face. That's confrontational. That's not the way those who oppose hunting operate. Right. 
you know, they go after things like the lead issue yep. or, you know, access or, you know, they're, they're, they're whittling away at the edges. And, you know, that's the way we're going to lose the right or the privilege or whatever you want to call it is, is, is those folks whittling away and they, and they're organized. I mean, they got a plan. They're not, you know, um, death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. You're death by a thousand cuts. Exactly. So, you know, whether it's litigation against our, you know, our public management agencies, so they can't manage our lands. So our wildlife suffers or, you know, however they do what they do, um, you're not going to see them say, we're going to take your right to hunt away. That's because they'll lose. Right. Yeah. They'll win by doing these other little behind-the-scenes nibble and cut things. What you just said there, Tony, is such a perfect segue into almost like you were reading my scripts here to to the next point I want to make. And we have been invested in conservation in this country now for a hundred plus years. For the most part. We as the hunting community have used models such as state-based management, a lot of stuff laid out in the North American model. The mechanisms by which we've advocated for our cause or ourselves or for wildlife or for landscapes have been 501c3 organizations. And those have been uh, habitat-specific or species-specific or whatever. And 501c3s are not designed there's restrictions on their political activities their lobbying activities other things and now the 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 nibbling around the edges the death by a thousand cuts thing those groups have figured out a really good model that we are not good at competing with they have attorneys they have other types of entities and i i wonder if we in the hunting world need to look at their model and say <laughs> let's go to school Let, let's maybe replicate some of what they're doing and and it's counter to our nature to say we want to spend time and energy trying to stop something when we've always been about building and expanding something but i wonder and i've asked a lot of a lot of people i respect in the hunting world about this do we in the hunting world need a different type of entity not saying get rid of our great groups that are doing all our great work and all of our advocacy but is the time that come where we need a, a different type of organization that is maybe more political is maybe more <laughs> staffed with attorneys instead of biologists because these groups have figured out all these complex federal laws that they can litigate they can do whatever through process that now wildlife is becoming more of a federal purview just by default of, of judicial decisions and federal regulations and less of a state management issue. And it's become less about biologists and range managers and those professionals and more about judges and attorneys and politicians. And can we afford any longer to sit back and die the death of a thousand cuts? You, you mean we're bringing a knife to a gunfight? <laughs> <laughs> that would be one way to put it, Keith. I, I said that uh, for 100 years we played football, and now the rules are tennis, and we think we're playing football still. Right. <laughs> well, I think, you know, part of the issue there, Randy, and I'm not, you know, and I think we certainly need to get much better organized than we are 
and get, you know, a PR effort, you know, a collective PR effort off the ground. But I think one of the things that we also have to do and that, the you know, the club and a lot of our partners are working on is updating some of these laws that are allowing these people to, you know, to litigate against our management agencies. Right. Um, as you know, I mean, there's groups out there that are filing one lawsuit after another against, you know, egg right. against uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And so and we have some laws on the books that, you know, were intended to be good laws, yep. you know, and they were good laws for a little while until all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> 25 years later, some somebody discovers a loophole and say, hey, you know, I can I can pursue my agenda by ex- exploiting this loophole. And oh, by the way, guess who gets paid the bill? Right. The American taxpayer. Right. So, you know, I think that the first step, in my opinion, to doing what you're suggesting might be the right time to do something here would be to try to fix those laws. I, I agree 100%. And the law that Tony's referring to, um, I can't remember if it was podcast 17 or 18, I had Arnie Dude, retired threatened and endangered species biologist from Montana on the podcast. And at about the one minute or one hour mark, I embarked on my thoughts of the Equal Access to Justice Act. And that's probably the one of the main mechanisms these groups use. Uh, and what Tony's talking about, and those of you who didn't hear that segment in that podcast, is that Equal Access to Justice Act was passed, I think, in the 70s. And the idea was so that grandma could sue the government if they tried to steamroll her house and pay her $2 or I think like 50% of the claims in the first 20 years or 10 years were social security claims. Um, and the premise is that if your net worth is below a certain number and you prevail in a substantive, substantial manner, uh, the government has to reimburse your attorney fees. I'm, I'm oversimplifying a complex law. Um, somewhere along the way, <clears throat> I think it was Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont uh, and a few others, decided that nonprofits should be granted reimbursement under that and not subject to a net worth provision like individuals and corporations are. So those of you listening, your taxpayer dollars <laughs> are often uh, uh, spent litigating state and federal agencies over their very usually very good management plans. Uh, and we can use examples of wolves. We can use examples of grizzly bears. We can use wild horses and burrows. We, the list goes on and on on things where some of the best biologists in the world in that field have come forth with management plans that would help this species. But it gets litigated because it's not what someone else wants. Some, somebody disagrees with It's not that the, the policy or the, the plan was bad. People didn't, didn't like it. Right. And, and Equal Access to Justice invites uh, the opportunity for you to sue that expert agency, that state agency, that federal agency, federal agencies and get reimbursed for your legal fees and that's we noticed that mainly through the wolf um the gray wolf in the in the rocky mountain states you know what was what was one lawsuit after another after where were these things coming from and that's really what tipped tipped it over um The problem, what ended up happening is in 1985, when they did the Paperwork Reduction Act, that eliminated the accountability. Right. 
um, nobody knew how much money the government was now paying out in these lawsuits. Right. And, you know, we've got some folks in the club. Uh, one of our past presidents did, did a lot of digging in that, and the numbers are now astronomical. Uh, the millions and millions of dollars that are being paid out. So it's, you know, we've turned our expert ag- expert agencies into an ATM for a lot of these <laughs> environmental groups. Um, yeah, they and they have yeah. built business models on oh, it, yeah. and they will deny. And even if it's not the value of the direct reimbursements mm-hmm. they get, it's the value of raising their profile. In other words, the government, the taxpayers, almost paying their marketing expenses to make a big deal out of grizzly bears or a big deal out of sage grouse. I mean, Thursday I read, you know, here we are, we're getting a big lawsuit filed over sage grouse with the normal litigators. Here, a decade of work of, of people on the land, the, the, the private groups, the state agencies, industry groups. I mean, you think about how much work went into sage grouse to keep them from being listed in September, and we got a not warranted decision. Some people didn't want to participate in that process. They refused to participate, and now what do they do? Litigate. And it's not just litigation of the management plan. There's all these procedural uh, rules. They call it APA rules, which are just government regulation. They're not actual law. So they'll bundle a few APA claims. Uh, What is it? Associated Procedural Act or something. Or anyhow, APA is a. It's back in the 50s. It said the government has to design regulations and procedures for how they're going to implement a law. The, the, the agencies do. So they bundle enough APA claims in with the other stuff that well they'll probably uh, they'll probably prevail on an APA item of oh you missed a deadline or your disclosure your your public notice wasn't this or wasn't that. So they bundle a whole bunch of issues knowing they're probably going to lose most of them, but they might get the one little technicality of an APA claim. And uh, I've been spending a lot of time out on our hunt talk forum talking about this because most hunters do not realize that this is a tool, this is an arrow in their quiver, and we get frustrated. Um, we, we complain that you know we, we've lost state control or we've this or that. And who do we get mad at? We get mad at agencies. We get mad at the the feds. Well, the feds are Congress. And if we're mad at the feds, Congress can change these laws. And I think we as hunters need to start looking beyond just our immediate frustration and say, what's the cause of this? What What is the mechanism being used to frustrate us? Because right now there's no accountability to the groups that are doing the litigating. And... It goes back to my point earlier of that process takes really good range managers and biologists and takes decisions and throws them over into the hands of judges and attorneys and politicians. And, and that's not how we got to this point was through no, judges, attorneys, not at and all. politicians. And then I think one thing to, you know, and you alluded to this a little bit, Randy, but, um, you know, these decisions need to be driven by facts and science. Right. Not emotion. And that is including <laughs> on, on the hunter side, you know, and, All right. and mm-hmm. you know, to back up to my earlier comment about, you know, correction of some of these laws, equal access to justice is a good example of a good law that was put into place for the right reason. And in, in fact, it still is right. a good law. Yep. The problem is it's got a bad loophole in it. Yep. So, you know, we got to work to fix the loopholes and it's going to be a very surgical process 
on these on some of these laws, whether it's ESA or or, or equal access to justice or what have you, because you don't want to hurt the good part, and you don't want to hurt the good groups that the uh, you know that these that these laws are protecting and helping, you know, and and doing what they were intended to do. Mm-hmm. So you know you, you know it's not about doing away with the law. That's no. an emotional reaction that you don't want to have. It's about surgically looking at things and saying this is what this is the piece that's not working. You know, the rest of it's fine. You know, this is the piece that's not working. This is what we need to either modernize or fix or plug or whatever. Um, Because, I, you know, the one thing I don't want to have folks think that these are bad. Right. No, and I... They were well-intended. It was just that, you know, we have some folks that found these (laughs) loopholes. And and loopholes, being I'm a CPA... (laughs) <laughs> you know, I get paid to find loopholes. No matter what Congress does, sooner or later we find a loophole in the tax law. Um, but uh, you make a very good point, Tony. I don't think anyone's advocating getting rid of the Equal no. Access to Justice Act. We're just saying level the playing field so that nonprofits are subject to the same net worth requirements. Make it so that they can't bundle all of these claims with one little itty-bitty thing so that they can say they prevailed on something and get reimbursement for everything. Make it transparent. So we know who's getting paid what, what claims are being honored and, and, and reimbursed for. I, I don't think too many people would say that's an, an unreasonable request. No, and I, think, and I think the end goal has got to be able to be empower our management agencies at the federal level to once again manage. Right. Because what's happened to those folks is in the past couple of decades is, you know, between funding challenges and litigation challenges, you know, the management has been extremely difficult they, they, uh, to do if they've, if they've been able to accomplish it at all, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and so, you know, that, that's kind of a key issue in, in this whole, you know, wildlife thing and, and, and how they, uh, you know, where they're at, you know, you know, how they migrate, how they survive and, you know, on public versus private lands, right. you know, is to be able to allow our public land managers to do just that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and unfortunately, um, you know, they haven't been able to, you no, know, they, you know, they, they just, and, and it's not their fault. I mean, the litigation, the funding challenges, you know, I mean, if you look at forest health alone or, you know, it's it's amazing how, you know, um, you know, and that's where when people start talking about transferring, pub, you know, public lands from feds to the state. So, you know, you, you know, you got to follow that train of thought a little bit deeper right. before, you know, again, that's an emotional reaction. Well, yeah, you know, we haven't seen good management at the fed love. Well, there's a reason for that. Exactly. But guess what? You know, if that moves all the problems are going to come with it. (laughs) And, and, and that's where people think, Oh, shoot. You know, we didn't think of that part. You know, I mean, they're going to get, now all of a sudden, guess who gets, who's going to face all these lawsuits? Who's going to face these funding challenges. I can tell you the state of Montana, one wildfire would wipe out our, I mean, we're we're just north of 800,000 people in this state. Right. One wildfire would wipe out our treasury. It would. Either that or we'd have to let it burn down. And then, boy, think of the screaming then, huh? Yeah, so but, I, th- I think, again, you know, all these efforts, I mean, I think people intend well, um, but I think that some of this stuff has got to be really thought out a lot better because it's, it's uh, 
uh, it's there's a method to the madness of, of, of how it can be most effectively implemented. Yeah, I, and, I agree exactly. And and I'm sitting here with two big brains, two big thinkers, guys. I mean, Tony and Keith. They, this, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm in third grade and I'm attending grad school with these guys. But they, Tony laid out a very important part of the link that many of you listeners hear me talk about and that's the public land transfer and part of what builds frustration that gets expressed and we'll just turn it over to the states is this litigation that results in no management and so people are like wow the feds damn feds this if you think it out to the next step think it a little deeper you realize it's not the BLM range manager's fault. It's not the local forester's fault. He doesn't have the money. A judge has said, you're going to do this, or Congress has said, you're going to do this. And no one's going to say feds are perfect. I mean, uh, the feds themselves, the federal land managers are not going to say, hey, we have it all figured out. But I, I think, you know, some corrections to this litigation stuff that seems to be so much the way, the way of, of the world these days um, is, is helpful in that discussion of keeping public lands in public hands. There's, well, there's no question the litigation thing is a, is a big handcuff, but <clears throat> just relative to forest health, um, we've got decades of overlapping policies that, that are hamstringing our expert, you know, our foresters and their ability to do what they need to do. Each presidential administration comes in with a new plan. <laughs> we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Um, you know, the club's been fortunate that um, nearly every Forest Service chief since the exception of the Forest Service, which the club is responsible for, has been a Boone and Crockett member. And uh, so we've got access to some real institutional knowledge there of how the Forest Service operates or doesn't operate. And, and there's some scary things there that needs to be unraveled. Yeah. Um, fire suppression is huge. Huge, right. huge problem. And, and I don't know if our listeners <clears throat> understand what, what Tony brought up of fire suppression. If you live in a place, if you're a listener and you live in, let's say, Texas where you have tornadoes or you live in Florida where you have hurricanes or you live in California where you have earthquakes, when one of those disasters strike, FEMA steps in. Congress passes an appropriations, emergency appropriations bill and takes care of that problem. With firefighting, they tell the BLM or most often the Forest Service, we're not giving you a firefighting budget. If you have a bad fire year, you take that out of your operating budget. There, there's no emergency declaration to give the agencies relief. So how do you do your road maintenance? How do you do your noxious weed maintenance? How do you, how do, you do all these other things that is part of your charter, part of your expectation, but all your money went, half your budget went to fight wildfires that year? It, you don't <laughs> that's exactly you it don't. and yeah. then people get mad at you because and then congress calls you in front of the committee and says why didn't you do all these things in the last five years well all of our budget went to fighting wildfires and the more we have to spend fighting wildfires the less budget we have remaining to manage for wildfires it, 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 and that's what you're talking about and, when you when you brought that up exactly and it, and it and it's compounded with the forest health with the beetle kill with the you know with the canopy that's growing you know it, it um these fires are bigger and nastier than they've ever been right and so they're you know their their lands 
escape incidents. And, you know, the fire suppression at this stage of the game is really more than the agency. I mean, they can handle the fire suppression piece, but they need some funding because they got a lot of other stuff besides fire suppression that they that they want and need to do. Yeah. And um, so I think, again, you know, we need to empower, you know, we need to help Congress, you know, help help Congress through, through our partnerships, you know, craft the appropriate legislation that would empower our agencies and to, 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 to manage again. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, you know, mid, you know, limit, you know, limit the, the exposure that they have to, you know, the funding challenges and the litigation challenges and all these other things that they, they have to face on a daily basis. Um, this also gets back to what we were talking about earlier, that environmental pendulum swinging too far. Uh, you know, we've got national forests where we haven't cut a stitch of timber in uh, how long? 30 years? Yeah. Um, you know, we're not allowed to manage our forests like we once did thinning. Uh, so these, these fire fields are building up. Then you got the catastrophic fire, costs more to put out. Yeah. Um, you I mean, know, we're not maintaining the roads. You know, that's politically incorrect. Yeah. All, all of these things are, are, you know, feeding off themselves. And, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's a lot to unravel, but we got to do it. We, I mean, we do. You know, this is where we recreate. Now, this is where we hunt, especially here in Montana. Uh, you know, the bulk of our land to hunt on where our elk and deer are national forests. Right. And, and you know, the critters aren't doing well. Oregon's in terrible shape. Um, what Was it like 60% canopy over mm-hmm. there now? Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyone who there's, knows. There's no sun getting to the ground. There's no browse. Uh, elk and deer populations are, you know, falling off. Or hunter, hunter participation's falling yeah. off. Then you've got the Fish and Wildlife Service has got, you know, or the you know Fish and Game has got less of a budget because they're not getting license sales. You know, all these things are connected. Yeah. And, and, and you can, know, and, and then, you know, and, and, and some of those populations are moving on to private ground where you don't have any access. So now all of a sudden, then there's a rub <laughs> between the sportsman and the landowner. Yeah. You know, it, it, there's so many moving parts to this, some of these things. It's, you know, just to sit back and watch it boggles your mind and gives you a headache <laughs> and to try to solve it on a daily basis it, it gives you a headache too but I, I think part of why we're having this discussion and part of why all of all three of us do what we do is we we think there are solutions and we know that those solutions have the land and the wildlife as the priority and well, it, that's it, that's what conservation is is having the land and the wildlife and and doing it in their best interest and uh, understanding and some, that, that it's a shared landscape. You know, you got to use that shared, wise and shared use approach. But, you know, there are solutions. And, you know, we have smart people that can think those solutions through. We just, you know, we've got to be able to overcome some of those challenges and, and uh, you know, get the appropriate, you know, political backing and, and get some of these things fixed and, and patched. And, and I think overall, um, you know, it, the, the good news in all of this is that we've actually identified what some of these issues are yeah. and what some of the problems are. And, 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 you know, we don't have it all solved. You know, we got to still noodle on a lot of it. And I, when I say we, I'm talking, you know, everybody, the, the, our community, you know, our science, our scientists, our, our 
NGOs are, you know, and <clears throat> like I said earlier, you know, the American sportsman is, is very well organized at the federal level. You know, we have a loose coalition, American Wildlife Conservation Partners of 45 groups represent eight and some million yep. sportsmen in our nation. And, you know, through that, you know, they've got a tremendous uh, resource for science and facts and to helping develop solutions to the issues we've been talking about today and also helping Congress identify not only the problem, but what that solution is so that they can then, you know, move that through that process. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's always a grind, you know, anytime you have to deal with, you know, <laughs> running through that whole political process. But the good news is there's light at the end of the tunnel and we have smart people, you know, that are on guard, that are, that are looking over our shoulder, that are making sure that things are moving in the right direction. But it's good for the American sportsmen to understand all this because okay. there's, you know, there's going to come a time where, you know, it, because not only do they have to understand how they should, um, you know, you know, the importance of acting responsibly as a hunter and, a hang, and an angler, but also, um, you know, that they're a part of a much bigger picture. Every time they buy a license, every time they buy a firearm, every time they buy a box of ammo or some fishing tackle, yeah. you know, um, they're a part of a very important process and one that they can be proud of. And um, so it's important that they understand what's going on. Yeah. I mean, America deserves to be informed. Yeah. And that's, you know, I hope that we were able to accomplish some of that in some of our discussion today. I'm, I'm hoping that we have, Tony. We're going to wrap this up here in a minute. Um, you know, for me, it gets back to you kind of have to make people aware and then you hope that either they educate themselves or they educate you or me or, or we educate others. And once you've made them aware and educated them, it's probably only then that you can engage them mm -hmm. and ask them, hey, you got to be engaged in this. This is, you know, this was handed to you by somebody else. This legacy, this, this wonderful conservation system we have, it, it doesn't come without the responsibility of doing something to preserve it, to enhance it, and to hand it off to the next person. And so I often get the email saying, Randy, you got me all fired up. <laughs> I, I'm ready to charge up San Juan Hill. Where's Theodore Roosevelt when we need him? Um, and very often the question is, what can I do? And obviously I'm going to give a shameless plug for Boone and Crockett Foundation to say one thing anyone can do is become a member of the Boone and Crockett Club uh, and read their Fair Chase magazine and, and become more informed that way. But if we've made them aware and then we've worked on the education part of it, I, I'd be interested if you guys have any thoughts about how the audience can can be engaged. Is it something that is so basic and at the local level that, hey, you, you know, you be part of your rod and gun club or you involve yourself in local politics or. Yeah. That, I, you know, that, that, you know, that's what I was going to say, Randy. I mean, I, I would encourage folks to. You know, obviously, we'd love to have them be a part of Boone and Crockett, and they'd be more than welcome to join as an associate and get our Fair Chase magazine. But I would also encourage them to be members of our of our other partner groups. You know, the pay, people who they, the, you know, the, the species that they're interested in, whether they, you know, if they're avid elk hunters, join the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Duck hunters, join Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever. You know, 
the Wild Sheep Foundation. Right. I mean, you know, these are all good people that are in good groups that are focused on 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 on, on issues that are very important to the future of, of, of not only those species but the individual landscape. You know, and so um, it's important that uh, you know that that the financial support is there because obviously we can't do anything without money. But then also, you know. Don't if we can engage with 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 all these folks, you know they have ideas. You know we need to listen. We're not the end all right, to this the problem. And so, you know, do, you know don't be afraid to write your congressman or write to the Boone and Crockett Club or whomever and say, you know, I have an idea. Mm-hmm. Would this work? Or you know, it's it's um, we're all in this together as a community. And and. You know, we are in, in, in essence a band of brothers, and so we need to stick, and sisters, and we need to stick together. And, um, but that, that is one thing that they can do is, is, is be aware and, and, and then look at how they can most actively be involved, how they feel they can be most effective, and take those steps. Yeah. We're wrapping up. Keith, you got any thoughts, any last comments you want to leave people with? Well, I think we covered a lot of. <laughs> A lot of important ground here. Yeah. Um, there is going to be <clears throat> episode number two, and so you, you guys, this is just the start for this you guys. Is just the start. Well, <laughs> um, you know, this is a get involved. This is a get involved issue. Um, you know, we're we're to a certain degree have allowed some things to get away from us, and. Uh, we're making taking steps to to reel that back in, uh, but our wildlife needs all the advocates they can get, and and uh, you know conservation is taking place out there uh, that's not entirely um, you know linked to hunting and angling. We've got people out there that that r- truly do care about wildlife. Um, you know, coalition building, uh, getting involved in, in other groups, you know, these are all, all important things. Yes, buying your hunting license and your fishing license is important, um, but, you know, you got to do more than that. Right. Um, and the good news is, and you see it, as, as people progress in their hunting and fishing careers, they get to a point where they, they have that, you know, I want to give back, I want to participate more, this is important to me. I want to see this for my kids, and so we that mechanism's in place, um, and and I am encouraged by seeing more people. Uh, we see here at the club, um, you know, people are asking us some really intelligent questions coming from from our associates. Um, you know, they're the boots on the ground, they're the eyes on the ground people. They're saying, hey, you know, we're seeing this here. Um, you know, can you send me some information? You know, I, I've given a talk. Uh, I want to. I want to know how to speak the lingo here, and, and we're happy to provide that. So, get involved, ask questions, um, be be a conservationist. Be a conservationist. You know, it is. Yeah. It, it started as a social movement. It is a social movement. Yeah. You know, we we had to have some laws to to correct some things. But for the most part, conservation is a movement of people. Yeah. And for me, it, I have a picture of my grandparents. And my, my grandmother's side moved to America from Finland in 1914. She was born here in 1915. My dad was the first generation that, didn't, that, that actually spoke good English. Um, 
his dad came from Sweden uh, shortly there, or just before uh, my grandmother came. And they have this picture, uh, and the date on the picture is 1937, uh, four years before my dad was born. And they're, they're plowing this field that was their garden of what, I mean, it was a very subsistence lifestyle for what they were doing in northern Minnesota. And that was, you know, the dirty 30s. And the picture in the background, it looks, it just doesn't look like a healthy landscape at that time. And I think about those, those people at that time, they were committed enough to wildlife and clean water and conservation that at the darkest hour in our country's economic times, they still made accommodations for wildlife. And I think how remarkable it is that even at that dark time, they didn't, and I'm not just speaking of my family, but when I see that, I think about, you know, how Ducks Unlimited started then and how this conservation ethic did not fade away just because times were tough. If yeah. anything, <clears throat> people made some serious sacrifices relative to what their, their living standards were. If you went and asked a guy, hey, do you think you could leave a few extra rows in for the deer, or for the pheasants, or for whatever? In today's world, maybe that wouldn't be as big of a, of a contribution or a, a take from his livelihood. In those days, it was. Sure. And those are the people who handed us this legacy. So to think that just buying our license, like you said, Keith, or as important as all that is, that's not enough it's never really been enough being an advocate or making some higher level of contribution either directly or indirectly is what's got us here and in randy Newberg's opinion that's what's going to get us to the next step sure well so. you brought up you know tony was talking about the excise taxes on firearms and ammunition those same depression era people in 1934 chose to tax themselves that's when the pitman robertson acts <laughs> yeah. happened isn't that remarkable? I mean, people are in soup lines. Yeah. And they go, you know what? We're going to pay an 11% tax over and above to support conservation. Yeah. And you think of how tough a times those were. And we all have parents or grandparents who'd lived through it. And, and we're still a connection to that generation. That, that is remarkable. That, that at our darkest financial time, people would tax themselves for wildlife and for habitat. Well, it's like Roosevelt said, there's no greater need in this country than conservation yeah uh, it was that was that's a direct quote yeah and he was right and those people realize that you know i think we again none of the things that we've talked about today are unfixable most of what we're talking about is more of a course correction but people do need to be involved and they need to be con aware of what's going on in the world around them and um and and, and participate in, in 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 being part of that solution yeah well, guys, Tony, keep, thanks, Randy. Keep up Thank the great you. work. Appreciate I, uh, I'll try not to make a nuisance of myself over here, but uh, I sure appreciate all that you guys in the Boone and Crockett Club have done and are doing today. Thanks, Randy. Thank you. And thanks for listening, folks. You can catch everything that you want about Randy Newberg on randynewberg.com on our Hunt Talk forum. And in the fall, quarters three and four, you can watch Randy make a fool of himself out there on the Sportsman's Channel by watching our TV show, Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg. Thanks for listening.